This comes from Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. All right. Um, so just real quick before we get started, a couple things. We had somebody else who was supposed to be speaking today, a pastor named Brian Na, who lives in Queens. And during Hurricane Ida, his house got wrecked. Um, so throughout this week, we're going to be kind of distributing some news about him and just some of the other stuff that's going on in the church. If you um, feel like you want to uh, help him out in the situation, there's going to be information on how to do that. And he'll be coming back on October 3rd. And I think the other thing that I just wanted to say is, like, um, I'm so thankful for everyone that's here, especially people who are here um, early getting things set up and for the people that are home that are getting into Zoom and the people that are taking a risk and being here and just being here all together. I think it's like, I don't know, one thing that I thought a lot about as we were worshiping today is, I think we're used to thinking of worship as a place where we do things for the sake of other people, but there's a promise in the Bible that God inhabits the praise of his people. We are here, we're gathered here, because when we do that, whether you're on Zoom or whether you're in this place, God comes to dwell with us in a special way. And as Peter and Eunice were singing um, Beautiful One, there's a line that says, there's nothing on earth as beautiful as you. And I know that's true, but when I hear it and when I sing it in this community, it hits me in a different way. So thank you, everybody, for doing all that you're doing. And I hope that whether you're at home or whether you're here, you sense that presence of God, too. All right, so to the message. <laughs> um, I grew up in the 90s, um, as you can tell, uh, which is another way of saying uh, I like grunge music and I like flannel shirts. And at the time that I was growing up, fashion was measured by how baggy your pants are and how many holes you have in your jeans. And I basically applied that same philosophy to my formal wear. When I had suits, the baggier, the better. The more buttons <laughs> up to the top, the better. And that's what I gravitated towards. So after I graduated college, I felt like this is the time for me to get a real suit. Something I could wear to my meetings, something I could wear to special events. So I visited a bunch of stores here in New York, and eventually I stumbled into 
a Hugo Boss. And I walked in and the salesman immediately like looked me up and down and kind of like, you know, put his nose up at me a little bit. And I was kind of like, oh, okay, that's interesting. So he eventually came to help me and he asked, okay, so where do you like to shop? I'm like, well, I don't know, J. Crew. And then he let out a little, hmm, like that. And I was like, oh, all right. And then he started showing me all these ugly, crazy expensive suits. And while this is going on, his manager is in the corner, this guy named Z, who I adore now. And he's watching all this stuff going on. And after a few minutes, he comes up to the guy and says, hey, what are you doing? None of these things are right for this guy. And I was so glad that Z put this obnoxious sales associate in his place. So Z's like, follow me. And I did, like Jesus. <laughs> I followed him. And he pulled out this one jacket for me. And he said, this is the suit that you're looking for. And I put it on. And it was like a mini miracle. The scoliosis I had since I was a kid from carrying one one shoulder strap was instantly cured and my posture like straightened up. I felt like my rotator cuffs start loosening up. I was like, oh man, I feel like good. And then I no longer felt like this frumpy teenager. I felt like a man in this suit. And in that moment, Z had revealed to me that I had been living under a cloud, a cloud of baggy clothing, a cloud of holy jeans. And he showed me the light of a good fit. And I think all of us have similar moments where we experience something and then we're kind of like, God, where was this my entire life? I can't believe I was living in this other way for so long. And believe it or not, ancient stories are filled with this theme. If you look at Greek mythology, there's so many stories like this. So for example, there's a kingdom in Lycia, which is modern day Turkey. And this kingdom was terrified by a horrible monster called the Chimera. It had the head and the body of a lion. There was an additional goat's head that was coming out of the back, and it had a serpent for a tail. But most importantly, this chimera breathed fire, and it terrorized the people of Lycia. And every time they left the city, chimera would burn them alive and eat them up. And the people lived under this cloud of terror until one day a hero came, killed chimera with the help of a winged horse named Pegasus. Now, what does this have to do with the Bible? I'm not sure, but we'll see. In Luke chapter 4, it talks about temptation. And I think many of us imagine temptation to be something that happens sporadically or something that's obvious. Like one day, a little red devil dressed in red sits on your shoulder and says, hey, you want to do drugs? Hey, you want to gamble? Hey, you want to cheat? Hey, you want to do all these other things? But the longer we hold on to that view of temptation, we'll never recognize its true power and we'll never see how pervasive it actually is in our life. Now, this passage shows us the ever-present nature of temptation. It's a burden that basically weighs on every single decision that we make, especially if we're not aware of it, and especially if we have not found a way to overcome it. In the passage immediately before Luke chapter 4, Luke walks through Jesus' genealogy. And unlike the other gospel writers, he traces it all the way back to Adam, the first man. And by going back that far, he's subtly making the point that Jesus did not just come to address some hyper-local, some occasional problem that we might deal with here and there. He has come to address a soul-sucking thing that plagues all people throughout all history and keeps us from experiencing life the way it should be lived. And in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes out into the desert to see if he has what it takes to set us free once and for all. 
So before we see what happens, let's pray real quick, and then we'll go into the passage. God, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you so much that it gives us guidance and insight into what's going on in our own lives. And in the Lord's Prayer, there's this line that says, lead us not into temptation. We recognize that many of us live under this habitual cloud of sin, little choices that we made throughout the years that have built up into a pattern of life where we can't even see it for what it is. And when we come to that realization, often we can get hopeless, often we can feel like we're alone, often we feel like this is just the way that I am, there's nothing that I can do about it. But help us to see that Christ has pierced that cloud, Christ has won that victory, and because he has conquered sin, we now have hope. I pray that you'd pour out your spirit into our hearts, help us to be mindful of the way that we put up barriers to following you, and free us so that we can experience the full power of knowing you, the full power of obedience, and we can experience true security, joy, and satisfaction. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. So, the first temptation. Jesus in the desert, and a devil approaches him after he's been fasting for 40 days, and he says, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, when you fast for long periods of time, your body goes through these crazy changes. In the first one or two days, the first thing your body starts eating in the absence of food is proteins. So it starts shrinking major muscle groups and you start feeling very weak. Then it switched to fat and enters a stage called ketosis, which is why a lot of people go into fasting as a weight loss thing, but it never works because you end up eating more afterwards. But anyway, when your body starts eating away at your fat, something strange happens to you because fat is where your body stores toxins. And now all of a sudden, all these things are released into your bloodstream. And people who fast for more than five or six days end up reporting that they feel nauseous, they feel sick, they feel almost like out of their body, out of themselves. And after a prolonged fast like this, not only are you feeling that way, but you're feeling physically tired, you're feeling mentally tired, you're feeling unsure of yourself. And verse two confirms that even though Jesus is the Son of God, he's a human being just like us. It tells us that he was hungry. And in a moment of physical and mental weakness, the devil wants to see, Jesus, are you going to prioritize the urges of your body, or are you going to prioritize the words of your Father? Now, throughout most of our lives, we've been trying to gain mastery over our bodies. When our when we're young, when we're infants, our bodies are still kind of like foreign things to us. So you see babies do all kinds of things that are cute for babies but would be strange if adults started doing them. So for example, one day a baby discovers that it has feet and like any new discovery that it makes, it does the same thing. It puts them in their mouth and you go, oh, that's so cute. But if you saw an adult do that, you'd be like, that is gross, right? Babies are discovering things about their body and this foreignness is why we celebrate major milestones in a child's life. I remember for Jen and me, it was very, very important that we were both there when Arlo started walking. And so we made a pact, a promise, a solemn vow between the two of us. If one of us saw Arlo on the verge of walking and the other person wasn't there, we'd run as fast as we can and push Arlo down and wait for the other person to come so that we would both be there when it happened. She probably didn't walk until the age of like 16 months or something like that for this reason. But we celebrate these milestones because like, yay, you did it. 
And as we get older, we refine our mastery over our body. We learn to use a fork. We learn to sit in a chair. We learn to do ballet. We learn to hit a mid-range jumper. But at various points in our lives, this mastery wavers, and our bodies get the better of us. So this past Friday, we went out to dinner. And since I started teaching, I got into this habit where I don't eat any lunch. I don't know, like I'm busy like playing with the kids or preparing for lectures, so I don't eat any lunch. We get to a restaurant, and I'm hungry. <laughs> like, I'm really hungry. And I have this thing where, like, if the waiters are not, like, on top of their job, I start getting really, really mad. So we sit down, and I'm looking at my watch. It's like four minutes, and they haven't brought out our menu. And I start shooting dirty looks at nobody. Nobody's there, but I'm looking into the door. I'm like, where are these guys? Eventually, I get up. I grab the menus myself. I'm like, Jen, here, here. Let's see what we're going to order. And then I start, like, rushing Jen and Arlo. I'm like, what do you want? And then Jen looks at me. She's like, what's your problem? And then I realized, like, it's a beautiful day. We're out eating dinner. The only thing that's wrong with me is that I'm hungry. And that's enough to make me this impatient monster and start mistreating my wife and kids in a public place. As we get older, this control of our body weakens. And I don't know if you guys have noticed this or not, too, but with every year that passes, our bodies start to exert a greater amount of control over the decisions that we make. How do I know this is true? When I was 19 and we had a retreat for church, I would sleep on the floor with 15 other dudes in a tight space and just be excited to hear God's word. Now, I want my own room, I want my own bathroom, and I want to know how many thread counts are in the blankets before I even think about going. For some reason, our bodies start to have a greater pull on the things that we're doing. Now, on the one hand, it's natural to prioritize our bodies. It's natural to prioritize those needs. But we cross a line when we absolutize our bodies and its needs and its desires, especially when we do that over God's word. We know this is happening when we start taking matters into our own hands, like Satan telling Jesus, turn this stone into bread. We start overstepping boundaries that should not be crossed. We start taking things that do not belong to us. We start bullying the people around us to satisfy the way that we want our bodies to feel. But despite this weakened state, Jesus resists the cries of his body and says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He teaches again that true satisfaction is not found in what we eat. It's not found in how we feel in our bodies. It's found in obeying God. Second, it starts in verse 5. And then the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been revealed to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. The second temptation is a strange one because at first glance it seems pretty straightforward. And Satan is basically saying, Do what I say and you'll get these shiny, glitzy, glamorous kingdoms. But when you meditate on it, you'll see that there's something much more subtle going on here. We know from other parts of the Bible that Jesus ultimately gets the thing that Satan promises. One day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. One day, all the kingdoms of the world will come to him and bow before him. All these things that Satan is promising, Jesus ultimately gets. So it's not the ends that are bad. So what is it that Satan is really offering here? What he's offering is an easy way out. 
He says, you see, to get these kingdoms according to God's plan, you have to go to the cross. Your best friends have to betray you. The people that you're trying to save have to mock you. You have to experience intense physical suffering and even emotional and spiritual suffering knowing that God the Father for a moment has abandoned you. He's saying, why go through all of that trouble? Take the easy way out, bow down to me, and you'll get the same result. Now, the appeal of the easy way is a thing that fuels cheaters in school. I teach fifth through eighth grade Latin, and starting in fifth grade, these kids are cheating, and they're so bad at it. They start, like, sweating and getting nervous, and then they're like, Dr. Kim, can I go to the bathroom? Like, it's been two minutes. You need to go? They're like, yes. And I look at their page. There's nothing there. They go to the bathroom. They come back, furiously start writing. And I'm like, empty your pockets. There's nothing in there. I go in the bathroom, in the trash can is a sheet full of all the answers. I'm like, come on, you're in fifth grade. You think you're gonna outsmart me? I went to college, come on, guys. And these kids are so nervous that they end up taking this easy way out. But it's not just kids. I think people do this all the time. Developers doing shoddy work, covering it up with a fresh coat of paint. Spouses lying to each other so that you can avoid a little bit of drama. But the devil offers a shortcut, and at the end of it, you see something else. He doesn't actually able to deliver what he promises that he can. And that's the same thing for people who take the easy way out. The cheater does not get knowledge, he gets a grade. The liar does not get peace, they get a cover-up. If Jesus were to bow down, he would not get sanctified kingdoms full of saints. He get the same mess that's always existed, still in need of a true savior. Jesus sees the scam and the janky reward that Satan is offering, and he responds, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He teaches that the only true path to glory is obedience. There are no shortcuts. And finally, there's a third temptation. It starts in verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. In the final temptation, Jesus is left wondering, if I fall, is God going to catch me? Does he really have my back? And the idea of putting yourself in free fall goes against a lot of the way that we've structured our lives. We strive to build increasing layers of security around us to insulate us from chaos. We get educated. We get jobs, we build wealth, we buy insurance and more insurance and more insurance just so that if something bad happens, we're not left scrambling last minute having to rely on the kindness of others. But even with all of our preparations, every now and again, the rug gets pulled out from under us and the world crashes around us. My mom um, had this trip planned last year and she was going to go to Hawaii. But then COVID hit and she delayed it. So she's like, okay. She's going to go with her college friends. She's in her 60s. So they've been friends for like 40 years. And then from that point on, they met every Thursday night, the day that they were supposed to take off, and just hung out for an hour, catching up. And finally, this year, they got to go to Hawaii. And she's so happy, sending me pictures from Maui and, you know, giving me FOMO and that kind of thing. But it reminded me, January... 13th, 2018. Do you guys remember this? January 13th, 2018. People living in Hawaii received an emergency message on their phones, and it said the following. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. 
Now, it ended up being a mistake from an employee who switched over and pressed the wrong button, but for 38 minutes, nobody in Hawaii knew that this was not real. And when you look through people's reactions on Twitter, you see what it feels like to have the rug pulled out from under you all of a sudden. People immediately started to panic, and they didn't know how they were going to spend the last moments of their life. And one person had family all over the island. He had two young kids in school. He just dropped off his oldest at the airport, and his wife was at the office. And for a few minutes, he had to decide, who am I going to go to in the last moments of my life? Now, losing all sense of security, feeling like something is beyond your control, is like this terrifying, harrowing place to be. And the devil is asking, hey, in that situation, do you really think God is going to take care of you? Let's just test it out. Let's be sure. Let's go up to this high place, bungee jump off, see if God is going to send his angels and pick you up. Following God means giving up control. We might not get to spend the money that we have on the things that we want. We might not get to live in the places that we want. We might not get to seek the safety and the comforts that everyone else gets to experience, and we might have to go into a dangerous or risky place. And if we're going to take that risk, we want to know, God, you got my back. And to ensure that we will, I think a lot of us, when we hear God speak, we're like, I want an extra sign. If you really want me to do this, write it in the sky, in the clouds. Or if you really want me to do this, speak in an audible voice or give me a sign so that I know that this is the case. And we end up throwing up all these additional barriers to following God. But Jesus refuses to do that. Instead, he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And he's teaching us that true security is not this possession that we get before we start following after him. It's something that only comes in the process of walking with him. It grows in us as we're actually in the spirit doing what he's called us to do. From one perspective, the devil is tempting Jesus with three separate things, bread, kingdoms, and safety. But in reality, he's just talking about one thing over and over and over again. Notice the refrain that keeps popping up. If you are the son of God, do this. And if you are the son of God, do that. Now, all three of these temptations boil down to one thing. Is God really your father? And is he really your good father? If he is, then why is your body in so much pain? Why is the path ahead of you so difficult? Why are you constantly in danger? Can you really trust him? This is the heart of temptation. Can we really trust that God has our best interests at heart? Alone, in the desert, Jesus is wrestling with this question. Will I believe that God will be my good father through all of the ups and downs that I'm going to have to go through? And will that be enough for me? For 40 days, Jesus struggled under this question and under this cloud of oppression that had terrorized and conquered every single person that had come before him. Every single person, regardless of how much they accomplished, how much wealth they had amassed, how much Bible they knew, how many sacrifices they had made, had all faltered at key points in their life because of this question, God, can I really trust you? And they fell experiencing the same things that Jesus had just submitted himself to. Up until that point, no one was righteous, not even one. I think most of you are aware, if you've been you know, involved in the church, the last two years have been a time of reckoning. A lot of the people who shaped my faith and whom I looked up to on a personal level uh, have turned out to be seriously morally compromised. 
Many of these people were pastors, and it's come out that they've been plagiarizing their sermons for years. Uh, a lot of these guys, more than you would think, have extramarital affairs that they've been hiding or sexually abusing people in their churches. And they've been covering it up for years while they keep doing public ministry. And when I started hearing about these things, I felt a mix of emotions. I felt rage at, a, and at this like hypocrisy of holding yourself up to be a model. Meanwhile, you've got all this junk going on in your own life. I felt sad for all the people that had been hurt, and I felt scared. And I was like, God, I looked up to these people so much, and if they can fall in this way, like, what's going to happen to me? What can the church learn from this time? How can we make it so that we're not exalting these superficial forms of piety or getting people to seek after these deformed things of security and glory and comfort how can we obey God and keep trusting that no matter what's going to happen, he's going to be with us? How can we keep the church focused on obedience? In closing, there's just a couple things I wanted to mention that I think this passage teaches us and helps us with. The first thing that it reminds us is faith is built in small things, not in big things. Look at what the devil is asking Jesus to do. Turn this stone into bread. Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Easy. He said, why don't you go and bow down to me and receive earthly glory? Roman centurions, who had nothing to do with Judaism, came to him asking him for help. Easy. He said, why don't you provide safety for yourself in a time of trouble? Jesus is in a boat. It's going crazy. He speaks the word and there is calm. He raises Lazarus from the dead. These things are easy for him, and they're small. But it's in that small decision that your faith is built up. It's not in these grand moments that all of a sudden, oh my goodness, I can't believe I fell into this sin. It's in these tiny little decisions we make along the way that ultimately get us there. The second thing that this passage teaches is that faith is formed in private moments, not in public ones. Jesus went away to be by himself in the desert to do battle with the devil. He didn't make a spectacle of it. He didn't bring the crowds. He didn't even bring his own disciples. He knew that if he was going to do what God wanted, he had to lock himself in a room, look in the mirror, and say, what do I have? Where is my faith? Now, most of us, hopefully, can manage to be good in front of other people, at least for like an hour and a half. I have like an hour and a half clock. After that, I'm like, I got to get out of here or else like the Hulk is going to come out. So I got to go. And this passage reminds us that there's something so crazy about temptation and it comes in verse 13. Verse 13 says, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. When was this time? When did Satan come back? He came back at Jesus' most vulnerable and also at his most public moment. They came as he was dying on the cross, and Luke 23 tells us that the ruler shouted, if he is the son of God, let him save himself. Then the, the soldier shouted, if you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. And finally, a thief on the cross turned to him and shouted, are you not the Christ? Save yourself. Three times to match the three temptations in the desert. And if Jesus had not succeeded in private, there's no way he would have been able to succeed in public. Faith in God is made in small, private moments. And finally, we have to remember, this passage just doesn't give us a model that we should emulate. 
It records a battle that has been won. In the fight against sin, we are not able to be victorious. Our bodies, our desire for comfort, our desire for ease will ultimately lead us to compromise. No matter how hard we tried, this cloud of terror remained. But in Luke 4, Jesus pierced through that for the first time in history. Someone had broken through the power of the enemy like Rocky cutting the Russian in round six with a right hook. He's not a machine. He's a man. And Jesus did the same thing, giving us hope. Because Jesus did that, we live with this hope that in the struggle against sin, it's not endless, and one day we will ultimately win. When he comes back and carries on and completes the work that he started. Just one quick uh, stanza. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Let's pray. I think we're all aware temptation is not just something that comes in these grand moments, but it's something that weighs down us in the little moments, in the small moments. And if you've lived with certain things in your life for long enough, you might feel like it's hopeless. You might feel like there's no way out. But this passage reminds us that because of what Christ has done, there is hope. There is power. The dark cloud that we've all been living under has been pierced and the sun is shining. I don't know what sins you guys are struggling with, but I know that Christ is the one who gives us freedom from it. So whatever it might be, maybe we can just ask the Spirit to come and give us freedom and give us power, and then Peter will lead us into a time of worship.